episode of Shades Midweek, a podcast where we talk about theology, culture, and all things Shades. My name is John Mark DeRoe, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Brad Brown and Jonathan Hafes. We are inside Four Stream Studios, and guys, it looks a little different in here. It does. I wasn't with y'all last week. I was very bummed to not be oh, here. yeah, you missed uh, Grant's yeah, episode. Yeah, well, and I gotta say, the replacement for me last week was just pitiful. Like... I mean, come on, guys! Like some get get something quality going on in here while I'm gone. I'm just yeah. kidding, Grant. I love you. It was very cruel, Jonathan. Very but yeah, cruel. no, it looks very different from the last time I was inside. This is like Four Stream Studios Expanded Edition or something. Yep we bought we brought in a demo crew, <laughs> uh, John Mark and myself. Right, and we and tore down the wall. Spent the morning doing construction work, which I feel very comfortable and natural in. Me too. <laughs> yeah, it's a natural gifting of mine. Yeah, totally. When uh, I we do this all the time at the house, yeah, just yeah, yeah, yeah. knocking down walls. And we did a little bit of electrical work, which was yeah. absolutely horrifying. As right. much as y'all are joking, you have worked like construction stuff yeah, before with but family, I was just right? hanging out. Oh. I was just hanging out. I was like, "Hey, you guys want to listen to Van Halen?" <laughs> that was Panama! my that was my contribution. <laughs> yeah, but it, you know, it feels good in here. There's a little more space and a little more breathing room. All of that. So yeah. really excited. Yeah, for those of you who have not been inside a four-stream studio, basically we had these two rooms side-by-side side that were virtually glorified closets. Right. So we've been recording in a closet, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they took down the wall between the two rooms, and so it is quite spacious, and maybe now we'll be motivated to actually like decorate the space and do something with it. I think it. so. I That's think true. it feels a lot better, and... We're going to throw some shelves up. Jonathan's, I mean, he's building a table and shades, blinds. Yeah. He's building shelves. I mean. I've committed to so much. Yeah, Yeah, I am. All this woodworking. Right. But anyway, yeah, it's good to be back in the studio. And you know know what I missed last week? I mean, I listened to the episode, but I missed being present and like here for JM's album of the week. JM's album of the week. So, you all right? <laughs> you okay? I think Jonathan got some fiberglass in his lungs yeah. from the demo. I took a big swig of tea, yeah. and I swallowed wrong, and I almost spit it everywhere. I'm be, sorry, guys. To be fair, he does have about a four-gallon coffee cup in front of him. Now I'm going to cough for the next hour. What album do you have? What album do you have? Hey, I'm going to keep it short and sweet this week. I was telling Brad earlier that as I was editing Grant's <laughs> Grant's Meet a Member episode from last week, and we did we bantered at the beginning. We had Jam's album of the week. We had Bradford's book club. We did all this stuff, and it took us like 25 minutes to do all that before we even asked Grant his first question. Absolutely horrible. So here's what I'm going to do just for this week, uh, because I know we have a lot to get to. I'm just going to be short and sweet, and this actually piggybacks off of last week's JM's album of the week. Last week I was talking about this band, Greta Van Fleet, who's a younger rock band from Michigan. They sound like Led Zeppelin. They sound like Jimi Hendrix. They sound like Rush, like some of those bands. And uh, they put out single and EP, and their new album came out this last Friday, so that is my album of the week this week. It's The Battle at Garden's Gate by Greta Van Fleet. And uh, I don't know, it just, it's awesome. I know Jonathan's been listening to some some of it. Um, just... 
it's rocking. It's just good rock and roll, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. awesome. There's a lot of cool stuff. Got some face melting guitar solos. It in does. There. It does. Yeah. What, what was that back. track that you were listening to when I walked into your office? I don't the even other remember. Which like one I, was that? I haven't. I haven't listened to the album like uh, attentively yet. Yeah. Uh, attentively. Attentively. It didn't sound right, but I was just it, gonna yeah, keep going. Yeah, it didn't sound right to me either. It's just like a speed bump. <laughs> but it in the could middle be. Of that word. It could be. Um, I I've just had it on in the background, like on repeat. So like I don't even know like names of tracks yet and that right. kind of thing but yeah oh, there's some there's some great cool, stuff in there. yeah so if yeah. you what a voice if uh man great voice great band so for anyone listening if you guys like rock music if you like stuff that sounds like zeppelin and kind of old 60s and 70s uh blues based kind of heavier rock and roll definitely check that out it's pretty awesome Greta van fleet that's wonderful. I like it. Well, last week, I also, when I was listening, heard a, a new jingle. That's right. You guys ready? For Bradford's Book Club? the last note of the choir <laughs> that one that one just gets me i'm just i'm so yeah, glad we, we brought in a choir from well, london yeah to we got that. we got hans zimmer yeah hans zimmer scored he was it. hard to track down but once right. he heard about what we do here at shades midweek yeah. he wanted to be a part of it the, yeah the cambridge boys choir yeah we're still the cambridge boys we're still choir. waiting on the london philharmonic to get back to us but <laughs> That's right. I think we can fit them inside. How here. long can we keep this joke going? Because I feel like I feel like I can do it for a few more minutes. I feel like you need a bow tie. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but here we are once again for the second edition of Bradford's Book Club, a time of sophistication and intellectual thought-provoking conversation. That's not true. We never really have a conversation. <laughs> but I am excited about the book that I have today. Are you guys ready for it? Yeah, bring it. So it's a book titled, I'm Praying for You, 40 Days of Praying the Bible for Someone Who's Suffering. So I'm going to read from the back cover, as I normally do, on Bradford's book club. When we hear that a friend or family member is struggling, it can be easy to say, I'm praying for you, but harder to know what to actually pray. Through 40 carefully chosen Bible passages, Nancy Guthrie, (laughs) Nancy Guthrie, so sophisticated. Yeah. <laughs> Come on yeah. over here with stumbling over words. It's a good, Nancy it's a good place to Guthrie be. opens up the wealth of scripture to teach us how to pray for those who are hurting. She shows us how the Bible provides us with a vocabulary for prayer that enables us to ask God to achieve what he intends in and through suffering. Each chapter, this is what's kind of unique for this book, each chapter includes a passage, a short explanation, a prayer for your friend or family member, and then a QR code. Yes, a QR code at the end of each prayer that you can uh, send to the person that you're praying for. So this is a really practical book, a very helpful book. Um, And each chapter, as I said, has a scripture passage and a prayer for someone who's suffering. And uh, one of the prayers has blanks, so you can 
pray along and insert someone's name. So, Lord, sometimes it seems like you work so slowly. Give Jonathan the patience to wait for you to accomplish all you intend. Even with Jonathan, I'm filling in the blank as an example. Um, I just thought my name was printed in the book. <laughs> uh, but but really cool and something that I'm definitely going to uh, put on my coffee table, my office desk, keep close by, either to pray for people on a consistent basis or um, if there's someone in need to, to grab. So I'm praying for you by Nancy Guthrie. Check it out. A very helpful, very practical book on prayer. And for our prayer team, I've bought you a copy. Jeff and Park, I bought you a copy. Wow. But in order to get it, you have to show that you listen to this. <laughs> come oh, by my office and you can get your copy. That's but good. I will not come to you. That's good, Brad. Yeah. Thanks for listening. This has been Bradford's Book Club. I love it. Incredible. I do love it. I love it. Well, you know, guys, uh, we started a new sermon series this past Sunday, which I'm very excited about on the Psalms. Yeah. Or the Psalms, as as Bono Bono says it. The Psalms. And so... uh, so that's kind of what we're doing today, right, Jonathan? Tell us, tell us what we're what we're doing. Yeah, basically, since I missed last week, I decided I needed to hear a lot of my own voice this week on the podcast. <laughs> Naturally, so I was like, guys, can we do something where I talk the whole time? Um, no, um, we yeah. So we started a series on the Psalms, and as always, you know, there's there's never enough time to dig into everything that you would like to, and particularly with the Psalms, there's there's a lot that. It, in my in my own studying that I'm learning and I would love to be able to share or teach that doesn't quite fit. Like with a Sunday morning sermon, it's much more akin to like lecture, classroom, that kind of thing. Lots of stuff about like Hebrew poetry and yada, yada, yada. And so I was like, man, what if we just, uh, yeah, did a midweek episode on the Psalms. So here we are. Here we are. Let's so do it. Basically, I'm just going to walk us through kind of three overarching questions. Guys, y'all feel free to jump in at any point, share any of your thoughts, ask any of your questions. Not that I'll be able to answer any of them, but go ahead. <laughs> so yeah, so just question number one, kind of like why the Psalms? Um, and I, I did share this a little bit on Sunday, so I'll just mm-hmm. touch it really quickly. Uh, basically, I I don't just think in terms of the logical flow of an individual series. When I sit down and I'm thinking through what are we teaching, what are we walking through, like I, I tend to look at a bigger picture than that, even as we move from series to series. I, I feel like the Lord is taking us somewhere. He's got us on a trajectory. And as I stepped back and looked at the last couple of series, this is what I felt like I saw. You know, we, uh, we studied the book of Revelation for a ton of last year, and really talked a lot about perseverance in the midst of that and how God has called us mm-hmm. to persevere as his people. Then we moved into family meals where we talked about what God has provided to help us persevere, these means of grace to feed our faith so that we persevere. Then we moved into that series of 40 years and 40 days where we talked about the temptations of Christ and the temptation that we face, the temptations we will face as we persevere uh, through the wilderness of this world and in this life. So we've just been talking about perseverance for such a long time and, and different aspects of it. And what I felt like when we got to the end of that was I felt like here we are, not necessarily even at the end of the pandemic, but it does feel like the situation is shifting and changing and getting better. We're all praying day by day. Mm-hmm. 
And, and people do feel, I think in general, like the situation is starting to change. And I think all of us find ourselves in a lot of different places. Like, yes, the Lord has called us per- to persevere. He's provided us with what we need. Yes, there are temptations we're going to face along the way. But I kind of find myself in this place right now where I'm tired or I'm frustrated or I'm angry or I'm suffering or I'm or what or I'm celebrating that things are getting better. Like we mm-hmm. find ourselves kind of all over the map right here. And I just felt the need for myself and then for us as a body to like collectively inhale and exhale, like sit for a moment. Um, and I really feel like that's something that the Psalms help us do. No matter where we find ourselves, no matter what we are experiencing emotionally, there are psalms that speak to us, that meet us where we are, and just help us to sit for a moment, honestly and openly, before the Lord. Um, and what the psalms ultimately do is they they plant us by streams that uh, allow our thirsty souls to drink in every season. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we call the series, uh, Planted by Streams, which is a phrase straight out of Psalm 1, which I'll talk more about in just a little bit. Um, but that's kind of why we're, we're approaching and doing the Psalms uh, right now. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't know if you guys got anything you want to throw in on that, like why you are, and you mentioned John Mark, like you're excited about the series. Like, I don't know what, what the Psalms have been for y'all. And Brad, I, I know like you've specifically mentioned how the Psalms have, uh, You've mentioned on a Sunday before how the Psalms have ministered to you in the midst of this uh, this time. So, yeah, so I'm just curious, I guess, before we move straight to the next question, just like what has been your experience of, of the Psalms? Why, why, like a lot of people have communicated as, as we've announced this series, I'm excited about it. Why do you think that is for people or why do you think that is for, for you? Mm. John Mark, what do you think? <laughs> he pointed to me. and Thanks so for throwing it back to me, Brad. <laughs> I threw it back to him. Sorry, I just like putting y'all on the spot here, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, uh, the Psalms, so so for being a musician and a worship leader, um, the Psalms has always been a way for me to, I think there's a number of things, uh, memorize scripture through song because yeah. people have, modern uh, songwriters have turned Psalms into songs. So I think that's sort of a unique way to actually uh, engage with Scripture yeah. in that way. You're actually singing it. You're doing it corporately on Sunday mornings. So, so I think that's awesome. Um, another thing is so, sort of reading the Psalms as poetry. Um, I think is uh, you know it's it's unique in in that sense um, as you're kind of looking at poetry throughout. Uh, the Bible. Um, there's definitely a lot in there. And then I think it just runs the gambit of all of the emotions that we experience as humans. And so I, th- I think as you go through Psalms, they're more joyful Psalms that are, uh, more, you know, focused on lament, uh, Psalms about injustice, Psalms of anger, you know, the imprecatory Psalms. So I think you run the gambit of the emotions. And, and so I think it's, uh, on any day, no matter how you're feeling, you can turn to that book and, and find something that directly relates to you in some way and how and how you're feeling and what you're what you're going through. So I, I definitely appreciate that about the Psalms. Yeah, so so much mm-hmm. of scripture, you know, is about uh, God and his relationship with his people. Um but the Psalms, it's like you get to see it in action. Like, yeah. you know, you're not mm-hmm. being told about it. 
you're, you're actually like getting down in the thick of it and seeing these people relate to God and sing to God and, and, and you're getting to see how they bring their emotions before God and all that. So mm-hmm. it's, it's almost, it almost sometimes feels a little bit like the difference of maybe uh, being told about uh, a game versus watching the game. You know, or, or, or something like that. Like it's it's like you're getting up close and and personal and meeting the people that you normally just just read about. And so mm-hmm. yeah, just that personal nature mm-hmm. of the of the Psalter is yeah. I think one of the reasons so many people connect with it. Yeah. One thing that comes to mind for me is the Psalms teach us how to pray. Mm-hmm. So when I was a kid, pretty small, I don't know how young, but with my grandparents, my grandfather was a pretty prominent businessman in Birmingham. And so we were going with my grandparents and my family to visit one of his friends, who was another prominent businessman in Birmingham. And in this other gentleman's office, there was a cat in the office. And as a kid, I hated animals and did not want to be around them. Dogs, it would always freak me out. And so I, we all get into the office together and like, it's a little uptight, you know, this like formal kind of meeting and the, the, my family's being introduced to this man and I'm a little kid. And so I know that there's an animal in this room. And so I climb up on my dad and you know, when kids just like take all the attention in the room, you know, and everyone just turns and looks at them. Well, that happens. And so I'm climbing up on my dad making a scene and my dad goes, what are you doing, Brad? And I go, where's that damn cat? <laughs> My parents were absolutely <laughs> horrified. How old were you? I have no idea. I was very little. I don't remember it. This story is told to me. My my grandmother was mortified. I mean, no doubt about it, right? But I mean, as a kid, I didn't know how to speak what, what appropriate speech was in this situation. And when I think about the Psalms, I'm struck with the reality that in and of ourselves, we don't know how to pray. Mm. God has to reveal and teach us how to pray. And in the Psalms, God is teaching us how to talk with him. Mm-hmm. And as we read the Psalms and we encounter the language that's there, and um, we encounter this authoritative text in which it's human words to God and yet God's words to us and how we're supposed to pray. And we learn how we are to communicate with God and talk with God when we're suffering, how we're, communi- how we're to communicate with him when we sin, how we're to communicate with him um, when we're disoriented or when we're filled with joy. And so obviously, as Jonathan mentioned, over the past year, we've had a variety of these emotions. And um, going to the Psalter has helped me verbalize what I've been feeling because so often uh, we're not aware. We feel things, but then to put it to words um, can be very challenging. And the Psalms do that, and the Psalms challenge us to do that before God. Yeah, I was really wondering how you're going to bring that back around to relate to the Psalms. <laughs> I don't know why that illustration popped no, into my head. No, but it's true. It's true. Like, we learn to pray the same way kids learn to talk. Kids yeah. listen to us talk. They repeat the words until they become their own, you know, and it's the same yeah. thing with yeah. with learning to pray. I mean, when Jesus' disciples ask him, teach us to pray, what does he do? He gives them a prayer. You know, he prays for them. It's like, say this. You know, and, right? And it's, exactly. It's, it's you repeat until the words become your own. So, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So for all these reasons, we're in the Psalms, and I'm I am also very excited about it. Uh, that leads us to ask really the second question, which is, what are 
the Psalms. And J.M. kind of mentioned uh, the dual aspect of what the Psalms are, namely poetry and songs. You know, they're not mm. merely poetry. They are meant to be musical and meant to be sung, uh, but they are poetry as well. But that begs the question, uh, like, how are they poetry? Because they're not they're not poetry in the sense of, of the way we normally think of poetry. Like, don't go there looking for, like... Uh, Roses are red. Right, right. Violets are blue. Yeah, don't go there looking for the way we, we think of poetry primarily in terms of meter right. and in terms of rhyme. Mm. So there's this rhythmic sense to it. And Hebrew poetry really doesn't have either one of those things. Um, it definitely does not have rhyme, even in Hebrew. Um, and there's debates over meter, but it doesn't really seem to have meter either. Mm. So, so what makes it poetry? You know, and, and a lot of people don't like a lot of people I know don't like poetry, period. And if you don't like poetry in English, yeah. <laughs> how are you going to appreciate Hebrew poetry that's even so much uh, so much more different? People don't like poetry, though, I find, because they don't understand poetry. Even though, like, there's poetry that I love, and then there's poetry that I'm like, eh, I could do without that. But I often learn to appreciate it if I just learn more about it. Right, know? yeah. So poetry just in general is really it's it's heightened language aimed at not merely conveying thought but conveying feeling like in other words a poet doesn't just want to tell you about something they want you to feel what they felt when they encountered the thing when they were writing the poem whatever it's it's meant to stir up those emotions in you mm-hmm. um and uh, and hebrew poetry is the same like it's not just aimed at your head, it's aimed at your heart. And it's not that other parts of the Bible aren't aimed at your heart, but poetry in a special, targeted, intensified way mm. takes aim at the emotions. And, and like mm-hmm. I said, Hebrew poetry, uh, it does this not so much with meter and rhyme. It, it does have some structure to it. It does have lines and strophes and stanzas. We don't really talk about all that. Um, but there are three main features of Hebrew poetry that I thought it would be good for us to, to highlight some we'll dig into a little bit more than others, but that is terseness, parallelism and imagery. So first terseness, I'll just say just a quick word about this. Um, Hebrew poetry minimizes some of the grammatical features that are normally present in Hebrew prose. Prose is just like, you know, normal speech. So in other words, one of the differences about Hebrew, about poetry in Hebrew is it's, it's tight. It's compact. You, you can think of it the way we think of like uh, song lyrics, like a songwriter, yeah. you know, in, in English, like something that you might take a paragraph to say if you're just talking, you, you say it in a line, you know, just a couple of words. Like, so, yeah. so what's all, love got to do with it? <laughs> and well, and often it even leads to quote unquote incorrect usage of language. Like you start cutting things that you would normally, right. you know, you might, you might even cut a stinking verb or, or noun or direct object or whatever, because it's just terse, it's tight, mm-hmm. um, which is one of the reasons you can identify Hebrew poetry very quickly in your Bible, even in your English Bible, because it it's not in the form of paragraphs, it's lines, just really quick little lines right. across the page. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one identifying mark, terseness. The second one, and this is probably the main one. So I'll probably spend most of the time here, but, uh, and that's parallelism, like the distinguishing feature of Hebrew poetry in particular, uh, is parallelism. Uh, what is parallelism? Okay. 
Two gonna, things that are parallel to one another. Am I right? Yeah, yeah, you got that. You got that. Um, I'm going to get a little technical here. Each line of a Hebrew poem, and line doesn't mean each sentence. Sometimes a line can have one sentence, multiple sentences. It, it, so, But each line, you can think of a line as like a, the most basic, I was about to say the most basic unit, but I'm actually going to break it down further than that. Um, but each line is made up of two, three, or four cola. Cola, spelled just like Coca-Cola. Uh, <laughs> cola is the plural for colon. Okay, so each line of Hebrew poetry has at least two colon, two phrases, two pieces to the line. Sometimes it has three, sometimes it has four, but it has at least two. And these colon are parallel to one another. This is the main way that Hebrew poetry works. You can identify, actually, even in your English Bible, you can identify uh, the various uh, colon. In a line, I'll, I'll give you a, a quick example. I just I'm opened here to Psalm two. I'm just looking at the last uh, verse, verse twelve. So the very first colon uh, will be all the way left in in the margin. Will be left justified. All right. The second uh, colon will be indented one space. If there's a third colon, it will also be indented one space, and then we move to a different line altogether right here. If there is a third indentation, that's not an indication of a new colon. That's just because this colon right here, they couldn't fit it all on one line. Hmm. So you can you can see how something breaks down. So like verse 9 has two colon. You see there's the first one, there's the second one. I know everybody on at home can't see that's <laughs> listening, but this is how the This is great for me though. This is how the indentations in in your Bible work though. Um and so you can see these lines, these colon, uh, sorry, I said lines, they are colon. You can see these two colon that make up one line, and they're supposed to be parallel to one another. Now, what do I mean by, by parallel? Okay, Because uh, obviously we're, we're not talking mathematically parallel here. Mm -hmm. What we mean, parallelism is the art of saying something similar in both cola, but with a difference added to the second. Okay, that definition comes from Mark Futado. Uh, he's got a great book, Interpreting the Psalms, I'll talk about later. I've relied heavily on his work as we talk today, uh, as well as the work of uh, another scholar named James Hamilton. Uh, but so the first colon makes a statement. The second one is parallel to it in some way. So it, it, it may repeat the idea in a, uh, in a similar way. It may repeat the idea in an opposite way. It may, but it's parallel in some way, but it adds to it somehow. So I'll give you some examples really quick of what I'm talking about. So these are uh, a couple of different examples from Psalm 29. So Psalm 29 and verse 1 uh, says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. So the first colon says, who's supposed to be ascribing to the Lord? Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. And the second colon adds to that. It says what they're to be ascribing. Ascribing. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. You see how those things are parallel. Or another one we could look at, Psalm 29 and verse 4. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. That one's really easy to see. You know, and all it does is it simply changes the small change between the parallel cola is, is a change of one characteristic to another, powerful to majesty. Psalm 29 and verse 5, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. 
the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. So you see the progression there from just cedars to cedars of Lebanon. Futado, when he lists that example, he says that would be like someone saying the Lord breaks the sequoias, the great sequoias in California. Like it's like this amplification Mm -hmm. of the idea. Uh, One more, Psalm 29 and verse 10. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. So the first colon says where God's throne is. It's over the flood, the chaotic waters that... Uh, of, of the pre-ordering of his creation. And the second colon is how long his throne is set up. It's for forever. So you can see how parallel, parallelism works. And this is, like I said, this is the main feature of Hebrew poetry. Now, sometimes you'll be like, I don't see a parallelism uh, in the ideas that are being communicated uh, right here. And that is most likely because the parallelism can also be grammatical. And it is really hard to see that in English. Um, You kind of have to be staring at it in Hebrew to see grammatical parallelism. So, all right, enough about parallelism, but there you go, main feature of Hebrew poetry. The next one, the last one I'll mention uh, is is the one that everybody likes more anyway, um, and that's imagery. Um, and this is not necessarily unique to uh, Hebrew poetry. Uh, obviously, this is this is common amongst all poetry, but you'll find it in Hebrew poetry in that poetry is is the language of images. So, um, just l- listen to uh, Psalm one hundred four verses one through four. Uh, in these four verses, there are eight images. Uh, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Uh, o Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. One. Covering yourself with light as a garment, two. Stretching out the heavens like a tent, three. He lays beams of his chambers on the waters, four. He makes clouds his chariot, five. He rides on the wings of the wind, six. He makes his messengers winds, seven. His ministers a flaming fire, eight. Eight images in four verses. You know, pe- people might say, uh, you know, imagery isn't unique to poetry. We use it in other forms of language. We use it in prose. Y- yes, but not with the same density and not with the same intensity. And, th- and the thing about images is this is how poetry engages our emotions even before it engages our minds. Uh, an, an image stirs our heart first, and then it's like our intellect has to catch up. Hmm. The Lord is my shepherd. Like that stirs your heart before you work out in your head what it means for the Lord to be your shepherd. Like something's going on inside you already that's stirring affection, you know. Um, So uh, when you encounter images in the Psalms, uh, sometimes it can be difficult because we are slightly removed from the culture uh, of the ancient Near East. Uh, By time, by the type of society, it was an agrarian society. And so sometimes... Uh, images are used that aren't a part of our normal everyday. Um, the the point of images is that they're supposed to be a part of your normal everyday life. Um, you know that's why poetry uses them. Everybody quickly understands it. Uh, but but yeah. So so yeah, some, that well that, go ahead. Just an example. I was going to say that reminds me of uh, Psalm thirty three two. Um, it is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. Yeah. And the image that I get in my mind is like, oh, gosh, it's like all this oil is like <laughs> in my eyes. It's like olive oil I'm trying to, you know, 
or like it's in my hair now and so obviously that's not the feeling that it's trying to provoke well so uh futado actually talks i don't think it's in that text but he talks about oil as an image and it's like when we hear the word oil our first two thoughts are cooking and motor (laughs) (laughs) neither are desirable down the face right right and he's like but to the ancient near east like the first thought is like perfume right yeah you know, it's like lotion. It's like a fragrant lotion, if you will. You know, so it's much mm-hmm. more attractive and, 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 and all of that. So yeah. very, very different. Now, for those of you who grow luscious beards, you may be thinking beard oil. And, and Could so, put some beard so oil on. We're, getting, we're getting yeah. a little bit closer. We're getting closer, right? we're getting yeah. closer there. They can yeah. identify. Um, yeah. But anyway, um, to, to understand the imagery, like if we encounter images we don't understand, there's really kind of three things to know and almost like a three-step process you can go through to try and understand imagery within a psalm as you encounter it. So um, so the three things that understanding imagery involves are, I'm going to use the fun technical ter- terms, source domain, target domain, and their relationship. All right, so what do I mean by those things? Source domain. Source domain is an aspect of everyday life that the poet is using to create an image. It's their source. It's their starting point. So Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Uh, the source domain is shepherd. I'm starting with this everyday image. This the, Whatever I'm wanting to convey to you is coming from, the source it's coming from is from shepherd. The target domain is what I'm trying to help you understand. It's it's the subject the poet is using the image to tell us about. So again, in Psalm 23.1, the Lord is my shepherd. The target domain is the Lord. I'm using the source image of the shepherd to tell you something about my target, what I want to communicate about, and that's the Lord. And so I understand the imagery by that third thing. What's the relationship between those two? What's the aspect of the source domain that is being transferred to the target domain? What's the aspect of a shepherd that's being transferred to tell me something about the Lord? Um, I can probably figure it out, one, from context. So the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That means I shall not be in need. So a shepherd provides for the sheep. Shepherd protects the sheep. Like so, so I know what's mainly being emphasized right here is the Lord as my provider, like a shepherd provides for sheep. But it's not just context uh, that can help you understand these images. It's also culture. So in other words, you could do reading about shepherds in the ancient Near Eastern culture. And the more you learn about shepherds and the more you can kind of get into what uh, the original hearers would have thought of when they thought of a shepherd, the more you can understand uh, those those images. So those... Mm-hmm. It's kind of the three steps to understanding. When you encounter an image, you'll go, oh, what's the everyday life element? What's the thing they're trying to, to transfer some of those qualities to? And, and what's the quality that is being transferred here? And mm-hmm. it helps you understand what the poet's communicating. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so there's some fun stuff about Hebrew poetry. Yeah. Uh, but it's important to remember, these aren't just poems. They are songs. Mm-hmm. Um, they were songs that often, a lot of them may have been written... Um, just by private individuals first, personal reflection. Uh, but all of them came to be used, were gathered together into this collection to be used in public worship. So they were used for public worship. They were used for private devotion, really the same way we still use songs now. Well, we use them both those ways. Yeah. Um, but the question really begins, uh, that begins to be asked is like, to what end, to what purpose 
is all this poetry, all these songs, why are they all being collected? What are they being used for publicly, corporately, privately, individually? And I argued on Sunday that the purpose of the Psalter is to plant us by streams. To, to, like Brad said, to give us language to pray, to sing, to shape our affections, to center us on God, um, to teach us how to bring our whole selves before the Lord, that we may be seen in his light, that we may learn to speak honestly, boldly, uh, be shaped, to feel and see rightly. Um, the Psalms plant us uh, by the stream of who God is and what God has promised to do. Uh, we, we talked a lot about um, how the Psalms plant us by the stream, by the truth that God reigns and that God is, is coming. Uh, we, we see this more as we move into kind of the final thing I had uh, for us to talk about, and that's the structure of the Psalms, the structure of the Psalms. So we know, we know why we are, as a body, are, are doing the Psalms. We know a little bit about what the Psalms are, but I think we begin to really see how it is that the Psalms plant us by streams, no matter where we are in whatever season of life, when we take a look at the structure. And I talked about this on Sunday, um, uh, a little bit, but I just kind of wanted to, to be able to expand on it uh, mm-hmm. because as this was something that as I studied uh, to, to start this series, I had never encountered this idea before. I, I looked at the Psalms as just in individual songs randomly slammed together. And uh, when I encountered this idea that there was actually a structure to the Psalter, um, I was, I was very skeptical <laughs> Um, honestly, uh, at first, and it was really through, like I said, Mark Furtado's work and then the work of James Hamilton and, and some others that, uh, they argued me into a corner, <laughs> um, and really, really convinced me. So everything I'm about to share, I'm heavily relying on, on those two scholars. They're not the only two scholars that make this argument. Um, but I, I have been convinced. So basically the base idea of the structure of the Psalms is that you've got to see the way the Psalms have been put together through the lens of the post-exilic community of Jews. What I mean by that is in the history of the Jewish people, uh, they went into exile somewhere around 586. My dates are weak right now, 586 or so, when the southern kingdom was taken into exile by Babylon. Um, And they were in exile for a hot minute before they made a return uh, around 400-ish, um, or, or actually it was earlier than that, but I'm going to leave the dates out. Uh, <laughs> Ish. I, I did not. They're pre- more like guidelines. Pre- They're more like yeah, yeah. guidelines. But by the year 400, you know, you're, you're dealing with the post-exile, post-exilic community. Uh, this is the community that's returned from exile, and and they are expecting God to fulfill all of the promises he's made. The promise to put one of David's descendants on the throne, the promise for the temple to be rebuilt, the promise for the kingdom of God to be established in full. Um, they're excited to see all of that happen. And so it's that community that puts the collection of the Psalms that we have together. There had been collections of Psalms before. But the way that they have come down to us was finally assembled by that community. And so the question is, did they have a purpose in the way they shaped the Psalter? Um, I tend to think yes, just on the basis of we have other books from this time period, such as 
First and Second Chronicles. If you've ever been reading through your Bible and you hit First and Second Chronicles, you're like, wait a second. I've read all of this before. I read it in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. Why, why are we on repeat here again? Mm. It's because what you're dealing with is the post-exilic community retelling the history of the kings. And what you may notice is they tell the best stories. They leave out all the the horrible stuff. <laughs> David, David and his sin, uh, you're not getting that here. <laughs> David comes off squeaky clean in, in Chronicles. Uh, and, and why? Because this is a community that's trying to remember the best of the monarchy and what God has promised to do through that, that he's going to reestablish it. It's, it's kind of like when, when any country uh, celebrates their history, if they have a date, to, so we celebrate on July the 4th, we tell our best stories. It's not when we get together on July 4th and are like, well, let's talk about all the tragedies in American history. <laughs> You know, I, we, we, we tell the best stories at that point. And that's kind of what you're getting here. They're not being dishonest with their history, but they're trying to inspire this community to, um, to, to, to look forward to what God has promised to do and reestablish um, the, the Davidic king. So that community has already done that kind of thing before is what I'm saying. So we should expect no less when they assemble the Psalms. And I, I think we see that's what they're doing right from the beginning through Psalm 1 and 2. It is very clear. All scholars agree on this. It's very clear that Psalm 1 and 2 have been placed at the beginning of the Psalter as an introduction. Uh, something I wanted to share on Sunday but got cut from the sermon. Well, go ahead, Jonathan. <laughs> was, uh, Eat your fill right now. <laughs> was they're, they're yawning a lot, if y'all don't know. Um, that's not it's true. Not, it's not you, Jonathan. <laughs> It's 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Oh, were you yawning? I, I wasn't yawning. I was going to say that's not true. I was yawning, and I had a quesadilla for lunch well, from the taco truck. Just for the record. And it, I haven't had my afternoon coffee. Just for the record, I'm locked in. I was John Mark over here. That's, that's the bad student. So. No, I'm loving this. Well, Continue. So um, in the Psalms, you encounter something called superscriptions. Um, so if you look at Psalm 3. Okay, at the very top of Psalm three, you will see probably in bold uh, the title. Some in the ESV, it's "Save Me, O God." That is not a superscription; that is a title, and that title has been put there by the modern Bible editors, by the translators of the ESV. It is not original in any case. You can ignore that thing. But right below that, in the version that I'm holding, the ESV I'm holding, is what looks like another title. It's not numbered as a verse. It's in all caps, and it's kind of squished. And it says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. That is a superscription. A superscription is uh, a part of the, the text as we have received it. And it's, it's like a little notation that gives you a little bit of information about the psalm that you're going to read. Sometimes it's just an author of David. Um, sometimes it gives you a little bit of historical information. Not all of the Psalms have them, but some do. Well, in book one of the Psalms, uh, we talked about on Sunday, the Psalms are subdivided into five books. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. But book one is Psalm 1 through Psalm 41. In book one, all of the Psalms have superscriptions, except Psalm 1 and 2. 
Now, if anyone wants to be a really dedicated student out there, they may email midweek being really upset, being like, Jonathan didn't tell the truth. We looked at it, and Psalm 10 and Psalm 33 do not have superscriptions. Well. That's what I was going to say. That's what y'all were going to say. Yeah. yeah. You're holding back. Right. Well. Yeah. You see why this got cut, right, <laughs> from the sermon. Psalm 10 and Psalm 9 were originally one psalm. It's been split. So it did have a superscription. Psalm 33 and Psalm 32 were originally one psalm. It's been split. So it did have a superscription. So all of the psalms in book one have a superscription, except Psalm 1 and 2. They are set off, marked off. There's something different. They've been placed here on purpose. And every scholar agrees it is as an introduction to the Psalter. Mm. Psalm 1 gives us the purpose of the Psalms. It's like an invitation for us to be planted by streams. For us to be planted, the, the streams are the word of God, the Torah. It, it is the Psalter. Uh, this is come and drink your fill of the Psalter. This is this is what the righteous person does. They, they sit and drink in the word of God. Like they learn mm-hmm. to pray this way, mm-hmm. no matter what season of life they're in. They learn to praise this way. Uh, the, the, the original title of the book of Psalms is uh, Songs of Praise. Uh, and you may be like, why the heck would they title it that? I mean, if you want to just count types of psalms here, most yeah. of them are lament. Right. It's because, as I'll argue, every psalm puts us on a trajectory towards praise, even the laments. Mm. Um, they're all leading us towards towards praise. And so this is the invitation. Come, drink, uh, plant your roots deep in in these waters, the psalms themselves. And then the second psalm, basically kind of unpacks why you should do that. Um, it, it gives us the promise of the Psalms. It's a royal Psalm, and it's been placed here to show you this is what the Psalms are going to hold out to you. And it's a, it's a Psalm that quotes uh, from 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant, where God makes a promise to David uh, that one day he will establish his throne forever. He will have a son who will rule forever. Uh, it's it's a messianic promise, a Messiah promise. Um, and the Psalms are saying, come let us root you, plant you by that stream. Like No matter where you are, this is what we're going to hold out to you. We're going to hold out to you the promise of God to send his Messiah. God is ruling and reigning. Uh, Psalm 2 starts that way. Then why do the nations rage? He who sits in the heavens laugh. God is ruling and reigning, no matter what it looks like, no matter if the nations are raging, wherever you find yourself, God is ruling and reigning. He's promised to bring his Messiah and save us and redeem all things, and he will. Let us take you through any season in life and plant you in that promise. Mm. That, that is why they are there as the introduction to the Psalter. The Psalter, I'm going to argue, has a, uh, the structure of it is it has a messianic shape. Mm. It is designed to plant you in the promise of God's redemption through the Messiah, hmm. which is why it begins centered around David, because that's who that promise was made to in Second hmm. Samuel seven. So, so books one through three trace the rise and the fall of the Davidic kings, and then books four and five are like, how do we respond to the fact that it looks like the Davidic kings and the promises of God have failed? You know, I, I you can see why a post-exilic community would put the Psalter together this way. 
here's our history and what God promised to David. It looked like it was coming to fruition. It all fell apart. How the heck do we respond to that? What are, what are we supposed to do? How do we praise the Lord now? So books one through three trace that rise and fall of Davidic kingship. And books four and five show us how to respond. I, I made the comparison on Sunday that uh, Psalms is almost kind of like a concept album. Uh, a concept album being a musical album that's put together to convey a concept or to tell a story. John Mark, do you have any thoughts about that? This was John. I thought Mark. that was a great choice. Did you, would thought, you? Would I you? Thought pick, Mamma Mia was a great choice. Would you have picked Mamma Mia, or was there album? something else? No, I, that would be a, my number one for sure. <laughs> John Mark told me his his his, his <laughs> only complaint about Sunday was that I used Mamma Mia instead of. I mean, it of, makes sense. There. What was the one you said? Dark Side of the Moon, Pink Floyd. Never yes, heard concept of it. Concept album. Great concept album. <laughs> Kidding. Fantastic. No, there are many. There are many. The specific reason I used Mamma Mia. <laughs> <laughs> is because uh, it takes songs from previously existing albums of the group ABBA. Do you say it ABBA or ABBA? I don't know, but they're great, by the way. I love it, them. But it takes songs from their pre-existing album and reassembles them, not in chronological order, but reassembles them to tell a story. Well, that's what the Psalms do. They take all these Psalms from different time periods written in different situations, and they reassemble them not chronologically. It's not like we're only going to find psalms written by David in the first two books of the Psalter. We'll find some at the very end. But it reassembles them thematically to trace the rise and the fall of the Davidic kings and how we're supposed to respond to that. So mm. I'll walk us through the five books really quickly here just to try and give a little bit more detail than I was able to give on Sunday to try and, and, and show you a little bit more how the Psalter does this. So book one is Psalm 1 through Psalm 41, and uh, it's it's emphasizing the Davidic covenant. Remember Psalm 2, that, that introduction to the Psalter, just said, hey, this is what the Psalter is all about, that God has promised us a Messiah through David's line. So, so the Psalter naturally opens up with who that promise was made to. It was made to David. Uh, and it opens up with it seeming like that promise is not being fulfilled. Psalm 3 uh, says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. Like, like this is David, you know, crying out to the Lord. Like, it sounds like, oh my goodness, all these promises we just heard, the nation's raging, that's all going to fail. It sounds like, no, nah, that's not what's happening at all. And that's really, I mean, the, the first book of the Psalms is just filled with these laments from David's life, um, this, this crying out to God to do what he has promised uh, to do. So it kind of feels like we're tracking with David's life, at least thematically, um, from, uh, uh, from, from the time period uh, before he became king. Well, by the time you get to the end of book one, so Psalm 41, it begins to seem like the promises to David are starting to be fulfilled. Uh, like maybe he is coming into his throne. Uh, Psalm 41 begins with the exact same word as Psalm 1, blessed Asherah. It's almost like it's saying, hey, David is becoming that blessed person. Uh, you get down to verse 11, and it, se it seems to say that David is beginning to triumph over his enemies, like Psalm 2 promised that he would do. It seems like, like everything is, be like David is coming into his, 
his throne. And then book one ends with a doxology. All of the books end with a doxology. I'll just read the one from, from book one. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Every doxology has the same four elements in it. Blessed be Yahweh, our covenant God, some type of the word forever, and amen. In other words, at the end of every single one of these books, no matter where we are in the story, we're being reminded by these doxologies that we are on our way, we are on a trajectory towards praise. We are on a trajectory towards what God has promised, towards the fulfillment of, of everything that he has, has said he will do, and, and we will be a people of praise. We're being reminded that at the end of every book. So, in book one, David's coming into the throne. That gets us to book two. Uh, one other way we know that David is coming into his throne when we get to book two is if you look at the superscription of Psalm 42, that first psalm there in book two, uh, the superscription is to the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah. The, the sons of Korah, you can read about them in a couple of different places in Scripture, but the ones being spoken of here, uh, they were among the Levites in charge of the service of song when David was king. In other words, we're being given a signal here that we are transitioning into the time when David is king. Uh, and we get that sense even as we travel throughout book two. Uh, when we get to Psalm 51, we hit uh, the events of 2 Samuel 11 and 12 when David sinned uh, by horrendously uh, abusing, I don't think it's inappropriate to say raping, mm. uh, Bathsheba and having her husband murdered. Um, and Psalm 51 is his repentance after Nathan confronts him. Uh, we know that because of the superscription. Um, so we're tracking through David's time as king. All the way till we get to the final psalm of book two, which is Psalm 72. The superscription there is simply of Solomon. It could mean Solomon's the author. More likely, I believe it means David wrote this psalm for his son Solomon. Uh, as Solomon is about to become king, David's nearing the end of his life. We're transitioning into the time of Solomon as king. And in this psalm, it's a beautiful psalm. And all of the prophecies of uh, that, that have come about this future king from David's line, it's like they're all being gathered. David's gathering them all up into Psalm 72 and speaking them as a blessing almost over Solomon. Uh, verse 8 talks about how this king from David's line, his reign will be over all the earth. Uh, Psalm 72, uh, verses 17 and 20 say, May his name endure forever. That That's... That's taken the promises that were made to Abraham from Genesis chapter 12, that God will make his name great, and it's applying them to this king. It's taking the promises from 2 Samuel 7, where God promised David, I'm going to make your house's name great through this king. It's applying to this king. May his name endure forever. May his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. That's Genesis 12, 3, when God promised Abraham, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed in you. He's being applied to David's son. May people be blessed in him, and the nations call him blessed. And then you go straight into the doxology. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed is his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. In other words, David is looking towards the fulfillment of God's promises through his son, and he's saying when God fulfills that promise, when he puts that final messianic king on the throne, the whole earth will be filled with his glory. All people will be blessed. 
uh, the name of the Lord will be great through him. And then you get the very final verse of book two that says, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. In other words, now we are moving on uh, from beyond David's life. Thematically, again, we're going to get Psalms later that are by David. But thematically here, we're, we're making this move. So through books one and two, we have traced the rise of the keeping of God's promises to David uh, by making David king. And now the kingdom's handed off to Solomon. So that moves us into book three, which is Psalms 73 to 89. And another signal here that we are moving beyond the historical David's life is there's only one Psalm of David in book three, whereas the first two books were dominated by Psalms of David. Now we only get one. Uh, But this book, it thematically mirrors the downward spiral of the kings after David. If you've read how it goes for Solomon and then how it goes for his sons, like it just goes from bad to worse to worse. And that's what we get throughout book three of the Psalter as well. And by the time you get to Psalm 79, it's like, yep, uh, exiles here, exiles upon us. As the kings kind of just did this downward spiral, God kept telling the people, exiles coming if you don't repent and return to me. Listen to the words of Psalm 79, verses 1 through 5. Oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They've defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They've given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They've poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We've become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Like, you just feel like we are entering into exile. The people are being defeated, and and you get this cry. This cry of how long, O Lord. By the time you get to the end of this book, uh, Psalm 89, uh, exiles here. Uh, Psalm 89 and verse 38 says, But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. Like, we're in exile. There is no Davidic king left we feel hopeless. And you really get that cry of how long, O Lord, which is a cry of faith. It's a cry that believes the promises will come to pass. The question's just how long? How long? And if you read verses 46 and 49 of Psalm 89, let me read those real quick. Verse 46, how long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? All those promises you made to David, where are they now? Everything lays in in ruins. And that transitions us into book four. So thematically, the people are in exile. Homeland's been destroyed, temple's been destroyed. And like the question that hangs in the air is like, will the people just disappear into the fabric of history. I mean, the, the point of exiling a people is to make them ultimately disappear, uh, to integrate them with the new society of their conquerors so that ethnically they just blend into the population and ultimately are gone as a distinct people group. And so that's kind of the question that's hanging, like will the people disappear? And, and what happens in book four is so interesting. Uh, all of a sudden, 
Moses, out of nowhere seemingly, begins to dominate book four. Like his name is just coming up all over the place. Psalm 90 that starts book four is the only psalm by Moses. It's like, what, what, it, 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 like what, what's going on? Well, if you can remember, in the wilderness, there were times when the people sinned, turned from God, and God threatened to destroy the people and just start over with Moses. And Moses interceded for the people. Well, here we are at a similar point in history. The people have sinned. God sent them into exile, and it seems like God's just going to destroy them. They're going to disappear. And it's almost as if the people put Moses right here, pull him forward right here to intercede for them again. Um, and and I think that because of how book four and book how book four begins and how it ends. Psalm ninety, it's by Moses, and it actually echoes the language of one of his intercessory prayers from his time in the wilderness. Listen to this in Exodus thirty two twelve. We read Moses praying, "Turn from your burning anger and relent from the disaster against your people." Psalm ninety in verse thirteen. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Turn, return, same word in Hebrew. Relent, have pity, same word in Hebrew. Like it's the language of Moses' intercession being echoed right at the beginning of book four. And then again at the end of book four, the very end of book four in Psalm 106 and verse 23, this is what we read. Therefore, he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. In other words, book four is pleading with God to save his people, not to destroy them, not to ultimately have them disappear, but to save his people. And it is aiming simultaneously to strengthen the faith of the people that he will do just that. Book four emphasizes confidence in God's reign. His reign over everything. It actually ends, if you read uh, Psalm 104 to 106, it ends by retelling the entire story of the people of God from creation through Abraham to the Exodus. And it basically concludes with the Exodus with a plea of, of the people being like, save us like that again. Just like you did in the Exodus, we're, we're kind of in another place. Just like the people were in Egypt back then, we're, we're in exile now. We need a second Exodus. Save us like that again. Listen to, to the concluding cry of of book four, Psalm 106 and verse 47. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations. In other words, like you did back in Egypt, do it again now in exile. Gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Doxology, book ends. Book five begins with an answer to that exact thing they just asked. Save us, gather us from the nations. Book five begins, Psalm 107, verses two and three. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Redeemed, that's an Exodus word. Just like God redeemed the people back in Exodus, he's redeemed again from exile. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. Book five begins basically saying rescue from exile has happened. But it gets even bigger than that. Uh, Book five is like a collection of songs that are going to be used to praise God when all of his promises have been fulfilled. So this is when we're really getting into the nitty gritty of what's being communicated to the post-exilic community through the structure of the Psalter. 
It's recalled the promises that God made to the kings. It's recalled, or to David, and it's recalled how those promises failed and they end up in exile. It's recalled how, and, and the way they should respond to that is through a, a faith that God still reigns. That's what was, was the response that was called for in book four. You should have faith that God still reigns. And now book five emphasizes their hope. Not only have we returned from exile, but we have hope that God will fulfill all of the other promises that he's made. And they begin to collect songs that praise him as if all of those promises have been fulfilled. Psalm 108 reads like a new conquest and a new divvying out of the promised land, but all of it belongs to God now. I want to read you Psalm 108, verses 8 and 9 really quickly. Psalm 108. Verses 8 and 9, Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter, Moab is my wash basin, upon Edom I cast my shoe over Philistia, I shout in triumph. In other words, if you remember, just like after the Exodus, God divided up the promised land between the people. It's now like, okay, I've brought you out of exile, and we're redivvying up the land, but all of the land now belongs to the Lord. Um, Psalm 109 is actually a combination of two previous Psalms of David, Psalm 57 and Psalm 60. You can read those and compare them with Psalm 109. And what it's doing is it's projecting the pattern of David's life into the future. Uh, if, you, if you read it, uh, basically, it's almost as if David has noticed a pattern uh, with with people in Israel's history. Like he's noticed a pattern in the life of Joseph, a pattern in the life of Moses, and a pattern that's true in his life. Um, you get this pattern through all of these chosen people in Israel's history where they're identified, then they're rejected, they're betrayed, and then exalted. And it's like David has seen that play out in these people's lives, and now he sees it play out in his own life, and he projects it into the future like this is going to play out in the life of the coming king from my line. Psalm 109, verses 6 and 8. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he's tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. I don't know if that psalm sounds familiar to you guys, but the apostles quote that psalm in reference to Judas. It's like the same pattern that David saw play out throughout Israel's history and in his own life. He projects that's going to play out in the future with God's coming king as well. And Psalm 110 actually then celebrates the victory of the Messiah, of the coming king. Psalm 110 and verse 6, he will execute, that coming king, that Messiah, he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs, or a more literal translation, he will shatter the head. It's a recall of Genesis 3.15, the promise that Christ would come and shatter the head of the serpent. He will shatter the head over the wide earth. So what you're getting at book five is not just the celebration of return from exile, but a celebration of when the king comes, even though he's betrayed, he will be victorious. And then Psalm 111 to 118, those are the Hallel Psalms. They, they go on to praise the victory of that future king. Then you get Psalm 119, which is this long, it's the longest psalm. It's this huge celebration of the word of God. It's as if the conquering king will come and he will establish the law of God as the way of life for the people of God in the city of God. And then you get Psalms 120 to 134, which are songs of ascent. It's the king has come, he's conquered, he's established the law as, as God's way of life in the city of God. Let's go up to the city of God now. 
Uh, let's let's go and and you get this sense of the nations streaming in to Zion, uh, and then right before Book Five ends, Psalm one thirty eight to one forty five, you get this this concentration once again of Davidic psalms. It's almost as if it's saying all those promises made to David all the way back there in the beginning. Yeah, all of those all of those promises have come to pass. And book five ends with Psalm one forty six to one fifty. That's just that, that that is the final doxology. All of those psalms form the final doxology, uh, and it's just this explosive doxology of praise, calling everyone, all the nations, to praise the Lord for what He has done. It literally ends with everything that has breath, praise the Lord. So I say all of that. They're looking at me now, eyes completely glazed over. And everybody's probably turned off this episode. That's fine. It's fine. It's whatever. I feel good having gotten all of it out of my system. Wait, Jonathan, I didn't quite capture what you were saying. Would you mind walking through that just one more time? The Psalter is structured around the Messiah, the promise of the Messiah. Uh, A promise made to David that did not come to fruition through him or his sons. The people suffered in exile, but were rescued, returned, and now are being told to put their full faith that God will keep his promises. That is uh, their ultimate hope, and we are even supplied with the songs to sing when that hope is fulfilled. So the purpose of that entire structure is to plant us in this promise that God reigns right now. And that his king is coming. It's to plant us in that promise in every season. Whether we're in a season like David, where it feels like God's made promises to us that aren't being kept. Or whether we're seeing some of those promises kept, we're tasting of them and we're celebrating. Or whether it feels like the time of David's sons when everything's fallen apart. Or the time of exile when it feels like God has completely forgotten us. Or maybe we even feel like we deserve to be wiped off the face of the map. Whatever season we find ourselves in, anger, depression, tired, whatever. The Psalms meet us there and put us on a trajectory. The overarching trajectory of the Psalter is from lament to praise. From this place of having received the promises to the place of the promises being kept and fulfilled. They plant us, no matter what season we're in, in the promise, God reigns and he is coming. So if you experience depression, the Psalter says, Here's how you bring that depression openly and honestly before the Lord and set it beside the promises of God that his Messiah will come to end all suffering, including depression. When you're angry, the Psalms say, here's how you come before the Lord with that anger, openly, honestly, not hiding anything. And here's what that anger looks like in light of the promises that God has made and that his Messiah will come to end all injustice. Psalms are constantly planting us in the stream, planting us in the promise. God reigns. And, and he is coming. So, yeah, okay. All right, I'm done with my monologue. The only thing I got left is maybe some resources to recommend if y'all feel like we still have time for that. Yeah, what, <laughs> what resources do you have, Jonathan? Go for it. Oh, um, well, just for like an introduction to the Psalms, if you're trying to get this picture of the overarching thing, uh, I have two different resources to recommend. Uh, one is a book by Tremper Longman called How to Read the Psalms. Um, it's pretty easy, pretty uh, to read pretty approachable. It'll give you more kind of what we talked about on the early end of like stuff about Hebrew poetry and how to read that and how to interpret that. The second book uh, is a little bit more technical, but it's the one I mentioned several times. 
It's called Interpreting the Psalms, and it's by Mark Futato, F-U-T-A-T-O. I'm guessing on how to say that. That's, that's one of the ones I'm heavily relying on for that argument concerning the structure of the Psalter. Uh, it's very detailed. It's very good. I think it's still readable, um, but uh, very, very helpful resource. So those are kind of introductions to the Psalter. If you want a commentary, like something that's going to help you understand each individual, because neither of those things I just mentioned are commentaries, but something that's going to like comment on every psalm, help you understand the imagery. Uh, if you want something that's uh, a little bit easier, uh more readable, accessible, uh, that kind of thing, then uh, there's a great commentary series called the NIV Application uh, Commentary Series. And the the Psalms volume, at least volume one, which is all I've been reading in so far, is, is fantastic. Uh, it is by Gerald Wilson. Um, if you want something a little bit more technical, you're like, I've got a little bit more of the technical questions. Uh, a great technical commentary, but still very readable. Uh, is by Alan Ross. It's just called A Commentary on the Psalms. Alan Ross was actually an Old Testament professor of mine and Brad's uh, at Beeson Divinity School. And this is a three-volume commentary. It's very hard to find a singular volume on the Psalms. Uh, there's 150 of them. <laughs> um, but uh, but it's very readable, but it'll dive a little bit into the uh, the deeper end probably for you if if you want something like that. Um, so yeah, those are my, my main... Uh, recommendations. And if you just want something that's just good for your soul, just to read alongside the Psalms. Um, we've talked about Malcolm Guite on here before. Yep. Uh, Malcolm Guite, he's a, a Anglican priest and, and poet, uh, but he's got a book of poetry called David's Crown, Sounding the Psalms. And he wrote one poem for each Psalm. Uh, and so it's just kind of a good companion to uh reflect on poetry through poetry mm, yeah so anyway but i've enjoyed i've enjoyed that as well you guys got any uh, uh resource recommendations any questions comments or are you just now waking up <laughs> now the only two resources that i were, uh, was going to add is uh, from church history so one check out c.s lewis's reflections on the psalms and then dietrich bonhoeffer also has a book psalms the prayer book of the bible uh, both of those men always will challenge you to think and reflect on scripture and read it in ways that will challenge you and uh, can be very beneficial. Yeah, I was going to mention one book real quick uh, that I've enjoyed reading through. It's called Open and Unafraid, The Psalms is a Guide to Life by W. David O. Taylor. He is a professor of theology and culture at Fuller Seminary. Um, he's also known for setting up that famous interview with Eugene Peterson and Bono where they talk about the Psalms. That's where uh, he says the Psalms. That's where I said Yeah, that. exactly. Yeah, yeah. The Psalms. Uh, which you can find that on YouTube and things like that. But uh, this is not a uh, commentary. This is not... Uh, an exhaustive theological exploration of every single psalm. It's more thematic. Um, the chapters are shorter. There's some cool exercises at the end of each chapter. Like, for example, there's a chapter on psalms of lament called sadness. And at the end of the chapter, he actually gives you some things that, uh, <clears throat> some applications that you can do, like write your own psalm of lament. And he walks through how you can do that yourself. So there's a lot, awesome. of, there's a lot of different cool exercises at the end of each chapter. And I've really enjoyed that book a lot. Question, does he go by W. David? Hi, well, my name's the, W. David. Well, I don't think so because his Instagram W. Is, David O. <laughs> yeah, his Instagram is just David O. Taylor. Okay. Uh, or David Taylor. Uh, so maybe that's his so, real name? 
Yeah, I don't know what the W stands for. So yeah, W David O Taylor. That is no (laughs) contribution to anything you said. He feels like he should be knighted, (laughs) Sir W David O Taylor. Um. So yeah, so that one's a cool one, and we have a reading guide. We do a Psalms reading guide. I completely forgot. We should definitely mention that. Yeah, we do stuff. We do (laughs) stuff too. Uh, It is a reading guide so that you can read through the entire book of Psalms uh, with us as we walk through the Planted by Stream series. That reading guide is available through our website, shadesvalley.org. You can find that on the homepage. So as you go open up your browser, go to the website, you'll see some slides on the front. You'll see it there and you can click it and get access to that. You can also subscribe to our email via the website. Uh, We've sent out the link uh, in the past, and I'll send it out a few more times in the weekly email that goes out normally on Wednesdays or Thursdays. So, Yeah, Jonathan, thank you for your study and for walking us through an overview of the Psalms and really uh, bringing out a lot of things that were there that people probably have not seen before. I I feel like I talked way too fast because I I I, I could feel it like it's pal- okay they I can could, slow it down I could feel it palpably <laughs> in the room yeah like the the loss of interest as we went along and I'm like Man, I think on Spotify you can do zero point seven uh, like you can do it slow it yeah down. they uh, sound hammered anyone right. that talks <laughs> right. sounds absolutely hammered uh, no and I'm, book too many one details. of the psalms <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But we are excited that we're starting this series. We hope you are, too. If you have any questions, you can email us at midweek at shadesvalley.org. If you guys don't have anything else to add, I think I'm going to sign us off. Yeah, let's get out of here. This has been another episode of Shades Midweek.